I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss a Supreme Court case that raises one of the most interesting issues in the Internet era, uh, namely, what qualifies as a true threat? The Supreme Court tackled this question earlier this week as the Supreme Court justices struggled to decide whether speech made on Facebook should be protected, even if it appeared to be threatening. And they also tried to come up with a standard about how courts should instruct jurors to determine that a threat exists. The case of Alanis versus United States originates near Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, not far from the National Constitution Center. A 30-year-old Anthony Alanis is challenging a 44-month prison sentence for posts he made on Facebook that seemed to target his wife with violence, including statements that he made online after he was served with a protection from abuse order. Uh, John Elwood, the attorney for Alonis, argued that the lower court that convicted him should have presented jurors with direct evidence proving that he'd made the statements with the intention of harming his wife. Alonis claimed he made the statements as therapeutic works of art in the form of rap lyrics and that he never intended to harm anyone. Uh, and at the Supreme Court, the Deputy Solicitor General Michael Dreeben argued that the lower court uh, uh, had the correct standard and that uh, Alonis's wife reasonably feared for her actions. Uh, joining us to discuss this important and fascinating case are two leading free speech experts who also were involved in writing briefs uh, in the case. Uh, Stephen M. Freeman is Director of Legal Affairs for the Anti-Defamation League in New York. Uh, Steve participated with his colleagues in writing a brief that supported the state's position. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Law Review. Ilya was part of a team that filed a brief in support of Anthony Alanis that included the Yale Law School and the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, Ilya, let me begin with you. Can you just uh, sum up the basic facts of the case and then tell about the two broad competing legal standards that the justices were uh, struggling to choose among as they tried to define true threats? Well, I think there were multiple standards they were struggling with, and that's part of uh, what makes this case so difficult. But, but anyhow, uh, Anthony Alonis uh, split up with his wife, or his wife left him with his little kids uh, when he was three years ago, when he was 27, uh, and he took this very badly. He was distraught. Um, uh, he was sent home from work several times. He works at an amusement park, uh, which is one of the colorful details of, of this case. Uh, and he took to Facebook uh, to uh, post often uh, lurid, sometimes violent um, uh, rap lyrics. Essentially, he styled himself as an amateur, as an amateur rapper, uh, and said that uh, you know, part of what helped him deal with uh, his depression, his uh, reaction to what was going on in his life, he ultimately lost his job as well. Uh, was uh, this creative outlet. Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, his wife got a protective order against him. She, she feared uh, what he might do, uh, uh, but he kept posting uh, uh, these uh, various uh, 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 lyrics or, or, or what have you uh, on Facebook. Uh, she was alerted to these, uh, and 
Uh, he was ultimately uh, prosecuted. First, he was investigated by an FBI agent, and then he made some rap lyrics about the FBI agent as well. He was ultimately convicted of four counts of threatening his wife, uh, the FBI agent, a local kindergarten. Uh, he was acquitted of threatening his place of work, the, the amusement park. But in any event, the, the issue here is um, under the relevant statute, which is 18 U.S.C. 875C, for those of you following along at home, uh, which makes it a federal crime to transmit in interstate commerce, quote, any communication containing any threat to injure the person of another. Does that statute contain a requirement of intent? Does the person have to intend to threaten, uh, kind of subjective intent as it's been called, or is it enough for, for prosecutors simply to establish that a reasonable person would objectively be threatened by those particular words? Uh, and if that's not in the statute, does the Constitution, does the First Amendment require that kind of mens rea? And mens rea, the idea of a guilty mind that you can't imprison someone, you can't prosecute someone unless they have the requisite culpable guilty mind uh, is what looms large here. What is the mens rea that's, that's necessary? Does the uh, person simply need to understand the English language, the words that he's uh, saying or, or publishing, communicating? Does he need to intend the words to threaten? Does he simply need to know that the words have a reasonable chance of threatening? Uh, how about recklessness, say, he knew or should have known? Uh, or gross negligence or something like that. So that's really what a lot of certainly the oral argument turned on, and I think ultimately that's what the court is struggling with. Great. Thank you so much for that uh, lucid introduction. Steve, is there anything you'd like to add to Ilya's description of the facts of the case, and how would you frame the choice between broadly uh, the standard that requires uh, evidence of subjective intent to harm and the one that would ask whether a reasonable person would experience harm. Uh, well, I thank you, first of all, for the invitation to be part of this podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm pleased to be with you. I don't have anything to add to the summary of facts that Ilya gave. Uh, in terms of the standard, I, the, the subjective test uh, requires a jury to acquit if they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person actually intended to threaten. So it basically, uh, arguably, essentially ignores all other contexts or makes other contexts irrelevant. I think uh, the objective test doesn't mean that juries will automatically convict. It just means juries can look at the entire context and, and not focus only or not be forced to focus only on whether the prosecution can prove the defendant's state of mind. Um, if you want me to get into a little bit what, what we thought, happy to do that. Um, but I think just in terms of the difference, um, the objective test is a, you could argue that it's a new or should have known um, that the language was going to be uh, threatening, that a reasonable person who was saying those things, knowing the context and knowing the target, um, knew or should have known that it would be perceived as a threat, whether or not uh, the person intended it that way. Great. Okay, so the issue is joined. And now, Ilya, I want you to explain why you think uh, it is important to have some sort of subjective intent standard, um, how you respond to the questions raised by Justice Ginsburg and some other justices that prosecutors could prove what's in somebody's mind, and broadly, wh wh why you're concerned that speech might be threatened if the reasonable person standard were adopted instead. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Justice Ginsburg's question, and I think that's sort of a, a key issue to address here. During oral argument, Justice Ginsburg said, well, are we supposed to, how are we supposed to know what's in a person's mind? 
Uh, and the answer to that, well, juries answer that question all of the time, or they make a decision, they make a judgment call one way or another uh, in all of the crimes where it's important to understand what the uh, defendant's uh, or uh, alleged uh, criminal's uh, uh, motive was in, in doing what he or she did. Uh, and so I, I don't think a subjective intent standard would be an automatic acquittal here or anywhere else. The jury could very well see, uh, well, look at all of this evidence, uh, you know, he's being facetious when he's saying that he didn't intend to threaten or uh, he probably didn't take the stand to testify at all, and we could still find a subjective intent to, to threaten. But uh, stepping back uh, from those kind of uh, technical criminal procedure issues, uh, I think what's important to uh, remember here uh, is uh, a 1969 Supreme Court case called Watts versus United States, which uh, the court there held that to ensure that public discussion remains, quote, uninhibited, robust, and wide open, the First Amendment protects speech that is vituperative, abusive, and inexact. Um, and we err generally uh, when we're talking about speech protections in the First Amendment uh, on uh, the side of allowing more speech. We don't want to run the risk of uh, restricting or punishing protected speech in the name of making sure that we uh, do punish speech that's, that's not protective or that's uh, obscene or uh, fighting words. There are very few categories of, of words uh, that are not protected by the or by, of expression that's not protected by the by the First Amendment. Uh, uh, true threats, uh, which is is not a very, as Justice Kennedy uh, said at the very beginning of oral argument, isn't a very satisfying phrase. Uh, is one of those fighting words is another which Justice Kagan uh, cleverly uh, defined as words that will make the reasonable person punch you in the face. Uh, child pornography, but, you know, they're very limited, the number of categories uh, that, are, uh, that, that can be uh, uh, punished or, or restricted or, or, or regulated. Uh, and here, uh, it seems to me that if you're, if you're saying that these sorts of uh, rap lyrics, even though it's an amateur rapper, uh, uh, as it were, if, if these are not protected, well then uh, Eminem uh, and others on uh, other uh, rap artists on whom uh, uh, Anthony Alonis modeled himself, modeled his lyrics, well, they, uh, they might be uh, uh, put in the dock as well. And if the response to that is, well, but they're entertainers, uh, you know, how do you define that? It, I think the answer is contextually, and con context goes to subjective intent. When I first uh, read the various statements that Alonis published on Facebook, um, I, I was uh, a little disgusted. I mean, these, you know, I'm not a rap fan, I'll, I'll admit that much. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought th these were some ugly words, some, some violent words. Um, you know, what could this be other than a threat? But then I read into the context and how he was sort of, uh, it's kind of funny, Alonis is, is a, a bit of a sophisticate with respect to the First Amendment and true threats law and things like this. He had all sorts of disclaimers. He had parodies of parodies, uh, very kind of sophisticated, uh, like a lot of rappers. You think the words are simple or they're not high class, as it were, but uh, there's uh, a lot of kind of contextual messaging going on here that a jury uh, should be able to consider um, whether there was actually an intent, uh, an intent to do something uh, criminal, like uh, cause someone to fear for uh, their, their life. Great. Okay. Uh, Steve Ilya has made the strong case for some sort of subjective intent requirement. In the ADL's brief, you made the argument that, quote, the plain language of the statute makes unlawful any threat to injure the person of another, and Alonis's conduct plainly fell within the threat, 
uh, within the scope of any threat, uh, end quote. Tell us more about why you believe the subjective intent standard is well, wrong and that the reasonable, the, the, the reasonable person standard is, is better. Uh, okay, let me um, pick up on a couple of things that Ilya said in, in answering that. Um, I think either generalized threats, whether they're virtual or otherwise, you know, rap lyrics are not going to meet either standard. Those are going to be protected speech. Uh, there's the, the key part here uh, is the targeting, the person that you know, the actor intended to threaten a particular victim or victim. And, and I agree with what Ilya said, that context is really important, and context uh, will help decide whether that a person should get convicted or not. Um, I, but I want to I take a step back, if I might, and talk about uh, what Ilya said about exceptions to free speech and why there are certain exceptions to free speech, because I think that helps shed light on on our position. Our position, ADL historically is very much a proponent of free speech. We believe very deeply in free speech and we typically think the answer to bad speech is more speech. But in the context of, of uh, the marketplace of ideas and the sort of that vision of the First Amendment and what the purpose of free speech is, the value of this kind of speech is, is very low. It contributes very little to any particular marketplace of ideas and its harm uh, is potentially very significant. A, a true threat you can't really argue with somebody who's making a true threat. There isn't really any reasoned response to, I'm going to rape you and leave your body in a creek. Um, so there's, when we talk about speech, when we talk about uh, liberty interests uh, and, and expanding speech as much as possible, um, from, the purpose, from the point of view of the speaker, sure, but there is a liberty interest also in the target. And if speech is, is making people fearful, afraid to go out of their homes, afraid to go online, afraid to function. Uh, there's, there's a concern on that side too. The, the idea of true threat jurisprudence, as I understand it, is to prevent harms to individuals and to society at large, to protect people from fear of violence, to protect from the disruption that in their lives that kind of fear engenders. Uh, so there, there are values on both sides here. And I think some of those briefs that were filed on behalf of um, domestic violence organizations that spend a lot of time dealing with domestic violence issues felt very strongly that, um, that, the, that the objective standard is the right one to analyze. Uh, but, but again, the objective standard is not a, um, it's, it, I, where I agree with Ilya is that context matters and context matters a lot. Um, and, all that's, and, and the jury should be able to look at whether or not something really was a true threat, really was conveying um, you know, something that would lead to that fear of violence. Um, the other thing I, I would say um, in terms of the online, uh, the comment that, that Ilya made about online um, uh, content, I think a, an objective inquiry is really appropriate, especially appropriate in the context of, of new media communications and context of social media because you don't have the same nonverbal cues to see what a person, there's no face-to-face -face interaction to discern you know, somebody's facial expressions or tone or volume or body language or other ways in, in the past that we've, that, we've in, that we've determined whether somebody was um, maybe kidding or maybe fooling around or maybe playing a jest or maybe being sarcastic. So you really need to have more than just um, what the words are. To, you, have, you need to have the context and you need to understand what the history of the relationship was and what the reasonable person is saying these things should know or should have known what the reaction was going to be. And that's why I think that I don't have a problem with a subjective standard, um, but, but I think it's not the only standard. It could be a, it could be a more serious crime if, there, if, you, if the prosecution can prove subjective intent. But I think it's still a threat if the prosecution can show that the person knew this was going to be the likely reaction from what he said, even if, they, even if answering Justice Ginsburg's question, they can't read into his mind and, and prove 
because he said, just kidding, just kidding, or something else, they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that's what he intended, they can still show that, he, that, that a reasonable person saying what he said, knowing what he knew, knowing who was going to hear it, um, would um, be frightened by it. Great. Okay. I, the, the, the nuance of this discussion is excellent, but broadly, we've put on the table the positions of the government and of, uh, of, of Mr. Elwood, uh, the lawyer, basically, the government is proposing to hold people accountable for the ordinary and natural meaning of the words that they say in context. And uh, Mr. Elwood, uh, who's Mr. Lonis's lawyer, says that you need more. You should have to prove the purpose was to threaten someone or at least that the speaker, whatever his, his purpose, knew that it's a virtual certainty that someone would feel threatened. Ilya, I want to get past the legalisms here because the question of what kind of online speech people should be held accountable for is hugely important at a time when kids and adults are posting all sorts of uh, content on Facebook that uh, might be uh, viewed as threatening or might be viewed as protected speech. At the oral argument, Chief Justice Roberts quoted lyrics from uh, the rapper Eminem, uh, where he, Eminem threatens to drown his wife, and there was an exchange between uh, Roberts and Dreeben about whether the standard should be a reasonable person or a reasonable teenager on the Internet. Please give me examples. If there is of such kind a thing. Of if there is such a thing, exactly. That was Dreeben's response, which was an excellent uh, line. Um, give me concrete examples of the hyperbolic speech on the internet uh, that you think should be protected and that might be suppressed if the government's uh, standard were adopted? Well, I, I don't know if the National Constitution Center's podcasts have an open comment section, but the comment sections of everything from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, down to the most fever swamps of whatever your uh, extreme political position, uh, political view might be, or artistic uh, uh, blogs for that matter, or websites uh, for, for music or, or art or uh, any other type of uh, creative endeavor. I mean, there is so much on the Internet, and uh, this is, I think, why it's particularly important uh, that to draw the line between threat and pr protected speech carefully, um, given the, the rise of the Internet as a forum of communication, where it is indeed easy to take things out of context where you don't see someone's facial expression or, you know, sometimes you do have, you know, winkies or other types of emoticons or emojis, little digital designs that are meant to indicate that something is uh, a jest or sarcastic or deadpan or whatever the, the, the case may be. Uh, and I think all of that uh, militates for finding a, uh, a subjective intent standard. Indeed, more broadly, in the context of the criminal law itself, uh, you know, we blanch before we uh, put someone uh, in jail, as opposed to perhaps finding them liable in tort for a, to, you know, to, to when you're suing somebody or, or, or something like that. We sometimes have strict liability, or we have uh, negligent standards, or things like this. But in terms of uh, uh, convicting someone of a felony, putting them in jail up to five years potentially with this, uh, with this type of uh, uh, statute that, that's at issue here. I think we want something more than simply uh, somebody's words uh, possibly taken out of context, but that an objective observer, um, yeah, could take to be threatening that, 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 that that's enough. I think that if you're going to take context uh, into account, uh, then you then you should take the the full context and and again I, I don't think that 
um, uh, you know, this would exonerate someone who is knowingly putting stuff out there that he or she knows uh, is very likely to cause harm. That's kind of, you know, at common law, what, that, that, that was subsumed by the intent standard. It's, it's almost like a, like a reckless standard or, or a known or, or should have known uh, sort of standard. Uh, but it can't simply be take the words on a page and see if that threatens whether the reasonable Supreme Court justice or the reasonable millennial who's experienced with Facebook. Great. Steve, I want to ask you about specific examples, too. The ADL is very thoughtful in this manner and has participated with the Internet service providers in trying to define standards for online speech. But let me give you the example of the Kill Kendall Jones page that Facebook uh, allowed to stay up. Kendall Jones was the 19-year-old teenager and hunter who got people very angry when she posted pictures online with her trophy kills. Uh, and in response to this uh, page, uh, a counter page was created saying, kill Kendall Jones. And Facebook, at least initially, decided to leave that up on the grounds that it wasn't a true threat and was basically protected parody or counter speech. Should uh, kill Kendall Jones have been removed under the reasonable person standard that the ADL proposes, and maybe you know give other examples of why you're you're not concerned that that, that parody and and other uh, speech would be suppressed under your standards. Well, okay, let me let me first separate out the difference between a true threat and what violates or doesn't violate Facebook's terms of service. And I'd like to talk about that for a minute. But before I do, I, I just want to come back to one thing Ilya said because I agree with him that the context is really important. Uh, the, 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 where I think we might differ is that I think the objective standard offers a more of an opportunity for a jury to consider the full context of a specific threat situation and decide whether or not the, 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 the threat was real, was <clears throat> legitimate, that the person who was the target of it you know, was, was legitimately feeling you know, afraid and, and, and his or her life was being disrupted, or if it was just sort of a, um, you know, some sort of parody or rap lyric, um, and if, if it's the latter, then I don't think there should be any, any uh, criminal, act, criminal prosecution, uh, or I don't think it's a crime. The, the, the question, when you, when you have a subjective standard, basically what you're saying is if the jury can't answer Justice Ginsburg's question, can't look into the person's mind, their hands are tied in terms of any, any finding of a true threat at all, and I think that's too limiting. Um, but I don't think that I know that if there's a, as often as the law, there's a line drawing question for the court to determine. I don't, it shouldn't be too broad either. Just because somebody says something that sounds like a threat does not mean under an, or an objective standard that that person should be prosecuted for it. Coming back to your question about, about Facebook and specific examples, now we've done a lot of work on cyberbullying. We've done a lot of work on cyber hate. I appreciate your acknowledging our work with the, with the companies. Um, Lots of examples of things that are posted online um, are, um, you know, people will interpret as, you know, take offense at. Um, we, we get those examples all the time of people who post anti-Semitic, you know, pictures or images or things like that. That doesn't mean it's, you know, it should be criminalized or it should be regarded as a threat. It, it's offensive. Um, Facebook has terms of service. Facebook, one of, the, one of the ironies and interesting parts of this case is that to note is that the speech didn't take place in a public park or a traditional open forum. It took place on Facebook. It, it, reached, it reached the point it reached because, um, um, because the, the Alanis' wife um, called it to law enforcement's attention and she thought she was being threatened and they, and they pursued it that way. And I think she had every reason to be fearful and to, and to want 
some legal action taken against uh, against Anthony Alanis. But in fact, it's quite likely that a lot of offensive comments made on Facebook, even if they weren't legally considered true threats, would violate Facebook's terms of service. Nobody has a fundamental constitutional right to publish anything on, on Facebook. It's governed by contracting. When you, when you get, accept the terms when you sign on, uh, and, and they're the ones who govern what's, what's permissible and what's not. So there are lots of less, less serious situations where someone who's targeted doesn't feel a need for law enforcement protection, and that they can still have an opportunity to ask for the comments to be removed. And typically, Facebook's attitude has been, in my experience, that if, if it's a comment specifically directed at a certain person that the person finds offensive, even if it's an ethnic slur or uh, something like that, even if it's not directly a threat, um, Facebook is likely to remove it. The, the issues that ADL has had with Facebook in the past has been stuff that we find offensive, like um, Holocaust denial pages, which we think are blatantly anti-Semitic, but don't necessarily target an individual um, Jew or Jewish organization. Uh, and they will say, it's, we don't like it. We disagree with it. It's hateful speech, but it's speech. Uh, and so I guess the question, there are, there are several different questions that sort of wrapped up in what you asked, Jeff, which is there, there's a difference between hate speech, hate speech online, and hate speech that rises to the level of a true threat. And bottom line, where I think Elia and I may agree is that these are very fact-specific cases. The Alanis case, no matter what standard you have, there was, there's a decent chance that if it had gone to a jury, they would have convicted him of, of engaging in a true threat. Um, but the, the facts really matter. And I don't think, as, just, as the Chief Justice pointed out, Eminem, you know, what Eminem is doing and what, and what the, the Deputy Solicitor General Grieven said, that's entertainment. And you, you look at the context. And if it's something that somebody is putting out on the internet that lots and lots of people are following, and listening to and either criticizing or making comments positive one way or the other, nobody realistically or reasonably, no objective observer is going to see that as a, a targeted threat that should be considered an exception to the First Amendment. Great. Uh, well, it's time for uh, closing arguments. Um, Ilya, as you and Steve have talked, it sounds like the difference between the two standards may be less dramatic than we initially thought. Both of you acknowledge that context is important, but disagree about the amount that there should be a subjective intent requirement. That leads me to ask, what's really at stake in this case? As Steve pointed out, Facebook's community standards in some ways have more to do about who can speak and who can be heard on Facebook than the legal standard that governs uh, federal law. So how many people are actually prosecuted under this standard? And if, the, if, if your position is rejected and, and the court adopts uh, the government's position, will that lead to a lot of speech being suppressed, or, or really is it up to Facebook in the end? I think that would chill a lot of communication online. Um, I think the existence of private remedies uh, like Facebook standards, whether that's taking off particular posts or banning the, um, the Facebook uh, page membership of a particular person, um, civil lawsuits uh, that, that uh, you know, if, if, if you feel uh, fear that causes some sort of psychological hurt to you, uh, sometimes that can, you can recover for that under the common law. Uh, uh, orders of protection. Uh, Alonis' wife got one here. If it's a violation of that protective order for him to continue saying things about her that she might be able to hear, or however it's crafted, that might be uh, another remedy. So I think that uh, you know, criminal prosecution should really be reserved for very serious things where clearly we know that the person is acting with a guilty mind. And, and again, the jury may very well have still convicted uh, Ilonis if the jury instruction had been, think about whether he intended to cause fear or apprehension or what have you. But that should have been 
what the jury instruction was. All of these things that we're talking about, interpreting the context, uh, taking a look at whether the threat was directed. In this case, for example, it was a general Facebook post. Uh, his wife wasn't even a friend of his. She saw the, the threats, or at least some of them, because somebody pointed them out to her. Um, all of these sorts of things, I'm not saying that Alonis therefore should be exonerated. I'm saying it's a jury question. Uh, we should not be convicting people of, of making threats, um, whether under this statute or if the statute allows it, then the statute, I think, is overbroad uh, in terms of running into First Amendment issues. Uh, and so juries really should be the ones to determine uh, whether this person is the type of guilty individual who's a threat to society, as it were, uh, and therefore uh, is, is, is worthy of punishment. Otherwise, we do... Uh, we, we err on uh, chilling or restricting or regulating uh, oftentimes speech that should be protected. I don't think the thing about being an entertainer versus a non-entertainer is a real dividing line. Here, for example, Alonis got certain likes on Facebook for some of his postings, as bizarre as that might sound. Um, and at, at a certain point, you know, Eminem was threatening his wife to, in, in essentially the same way that uh, to more people, uh, as it were, than than Alonis was here. So it's a close question. And again, some of these might go to the, you know, would go to the jury, maybe under, under, the different, under the different subjective standard, he would still be convicted for threatening his wife, but not the kindergarten or the uh, FBI agent, say. I don't know. But again, this is for a jury of his peers to determine, uh, not simply uh, for the government to say, well, this is threatening speech, therefore he goes to jail. Great. Thanks so much for, for that. Steve, last word to you. Um, why is this case important? How important is it? And in an age when Facebook's community standards are so crucial in determining who can speak, um, will, will the Supreme Court's decision really have a big impact? Um, well, yes, I think it might. Um, first of all, in terms of the chilling effect that, that Elia talked about, there, there haven't been a lot of cases. Tw Ten of the 12 circuits have had the objective standard, and there have not been a lot of cases, to my knowledge, uh, a lot of prosecutions under it. So I don't think the impact in that, in, in that sense will be... Um, so huge if they may, if they keep the objective standard. I, I, my I guess my closing thoughts. One is um, something I alluded to earlier, which is the perspective of the victim matters here as much as the perspective of the perpetrator, if you will, of the person making the speech. We tend to look at this issue and look at it through the through the prism of uh, of Alanis and how far can he go and what are his. No, we want to make sure we respect his free speech rights and so forth. But uh, Tara Lannis has has rights too, and, and and especially the right to live a life that's not, you know, totally in fear and cowering and worrying about what her estranged husband is going to do, and and that's why there is a a criminal sanction for true threats. So and the, in the domestic violence context, these you know these laws are are important. It's important for somebody to be able to establish uh, if she's being threatened and to be able to have the, the legal system come to bear in that context. In terms of Facebook and their terms of service, uh, I think that you're right that a lot of these issues can be dealt with in, in, the, online, in the online world through, through terms of service. There are, there are exceptions which rise to the level where, where law enforcement action is warranted. And I think if the Supreme Court um, follows the recommendation of the government and says the objective standard is the, is the correct standard, that would, that would be a, um, an, a, an appropriate way for, for us to find the correct line, not over-prosecute, not prosecute cases where it's clearly the case that it was not intended and, and was not 
uh, and the perpetrator did, did not know or did, shouldn't have known that it was a threat, that it was clearly something else. But in those cases where it was a threat, that the system has appropriate uh, remedies and recourse for that. How significant um, what the impact will be? Um, I think that there, the, the, it's an opportunity for the court to clarify uh, an exception to the First Amendment that a lot of people don't have a good handle on uh, currently. What, what is a true threat? What, what, how you interpret a true threat? Um, and and in, in the context of the, the world we live in now with the social media, um, it's important to have a clear understanding that we have now of where the line is. And I think that's ultimately what this case will decide. Steve Freeman and Ilya Shapiro, thank you for an illuminating and cogent discussion of one of the most important First Amendment cases of this Supreme Court term. Uh, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.